Hello, and welcome to The Juice and the Squeeze, a zesty podcast by two academics about where, how, and why we focus our efforts. I'm Julia Strand, here with my co-host, Jonathan Peel. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Julia. Hi there. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. We're on number two. And you know what? People listen to number one. Yeah, it's so great. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we wanted to make sure to tell you, if you want to find uh, show notes and links from this episode, you can go to our website, juiceandsqueeze.net slash two for episode number two. And thanks so much to everybody who reached out with comments after episode one. It's really nice to hear from people after, uh, you know, sending our voices out into the void. Yes, it was. It was great to get the feedback. So uh, we do have an idea for what to talk about today, Julia, which means two weeks in a row we've actually had a plan, um, mm-hmm. which I think is a really good start. What should we talk about today? Well, I know a bunch of stuff that you're good at, Jonathan. You're good at uh, science and mentoring and French horn, I learned, and tweeting. And so maybe it'd be a nice time to share with our listeners some of the things that we're really bad at ah. and how we have overcome those things. <laughs> That's a great idea. I'm going <laughs> to let you go first um, so I can do some thinking about what ex- I'm bad at lots of things, don't get me wrong, but I'll just think about which ones I actually want to share uh, publicly. You know, so this was actually, this was a fun one to prepare for because we had this idea of, you know, sharing what we're bad at, how we overcome it. Um, and it, it was a fun thing to consider because as I was going about my day, I'd notice, oh, I'm bad at that. And oh, look, I'm kind of bad at that. Uh, but I did it in, I don't know, a way that didn't make me feel bad about myself was, was just kind of fun. So, um, I'm terrible at a few different things. Uh, Some of them there isn't a whole lot to say about. Like, I'm really bad at judging the right size Tupperware for leftovers. I just, I just, my fridge ends up full of a million containers that are overfilled or underfilled. I'm horrible at that too. And and both ways equally, right? So sometimes (laughs) I'll get like two little pieces of food in like the 18 gallon Tupperware Yep. And or I'm, then I then I try to overcompensate, right? And I'm like, I'm not going to make that mistake. And then I end up using five pieces because, yeah, right. So that was what I thought of. But I was like, ah, there's not that much to say about that one. Ditto bowling. I'm terrible at bowling, but I'm, that's not the one I want to talk about. One of the ones that I thought might be might be interesting and and, and fun to share. So I. I, st- I study perception, and I teach a course on it that includes uh, uh, units on face recognition. And so I've, I've thought a lot about face recognition from kind of an academic standpoint, um, but I've also thought about it a lot personally because, as it turns out, um, I'm, I'm terrible at recognizing faces. And I, I want to start by saying that there, there is a condition that sometimes uh, colloquially, colloquially referred to as, as face blindness. Um, it's called prosopagnosia. And we'll, I'll, I'll include an introduction to it uh, uh, about prosopagnosia in the, in the show notes. Um, but it's this really like profound inability to distinguish between faces. So even like loved ones, family members, you know, close friends, um, people with prosopagnosia can't identify them based on, based on their faces. But they can still, they can still recognize people in other ways. So the example that I give in classes is usually if you like imagine that a close friend of yours walks up to you wearing a mask that covers their face, you could probably still figure out who they are, right? Based on like their voice and what they're wearing and their hair and like how they walk. Um, and so people with prosopagnosia can still use use those clues so they can recognize people in other ways. So there is this, this is, there is this condition. Um, I do not have that. And there's been a, a good amount of research on people who who have prosopagnosia. There's also been some work on people who are off the far other end of the continuum um, in terms of people who are like really great at recognizing faces. 
They're called super recognizers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and when they'll say, oh, I remember you, right? We met at a party 10 years ago or whatever, right? Um, so we know that there are people who are like at these real extremes in face recognition. But there hasn't been much research on the people who are in the middle. And my hunch is that this is probably an ability that to some extent varies on a continuum. And I'm just on the really bad end that isn't quite clinical. When did you first um, notice that you were not great at recognizing faces? Right. Okay. So so this, it's a great question. Um, um, because as with all things perceptual, it's really hard to know how your own abilities compare to other people's because, of course, we each like walk in our own perceptual worlds and it isn't possible for me to just pop into Jonathan's head and see how well he recognizes faces. So I can say, oh, look, it's slightly different for me. Um, right. So maybe like your colors seem slightly brighter or food tastes right. slightly How spicier. do I know that my red is the same as your red? Yeah. yeah. Or like, I love spicy food. How are you on spicy food? Oh, good. Pretty good. Yeah. Okay. So let's say, let's say I love spicy food and let's pretend I like it more than you do. Um, maybe that's because it actually, t- it, you actually experience it more intensely than I do. Maybe it's because we experience it exactly the same, but I just like it more than you do. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it's hard to know. And so with faces, how do you know, right? Like, how right, do I, right. I, I, yeah. Um, so there have been all of these, like, cues and weird things in my past that really start to make sense once I realize that I'm, that I'm, bad at recognizing faces. And, and what, I, what I think I have done to overcome this is start to prioritize external cues to recognize people like people with prosopagnosia do. Um, so I was, I was thinking of what's, what's – I have, I have dozens and dozens of examples of these, and I was trying to come up with what's, uh, what's a good one for this. Um, and I think the kind of best clear one um, – is I really realized what was happening when I when I started watching this show called Orphan Black. Do you know this one? Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I haven't watched it much, but I do. Okay. I know it. Yeah. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna do a minor spoiler, but it's one that gets revealed in like the first episode. So, so it so so don't okay, worry. I'm not, ready. Not yeah. Okay. okay. Um. So in this show, there are all of these characters who are like clones of one another. You know, because some evil scientist is making clones, and the clones are like finding each other. Um. And I was watching it uh, right at the beginning, and my husband, like, popped in and asked what it was about and sat down with me. And, you know, I had been watching it for longer than he had. Um, and I was saying that I didn't quite get the premise. and But then they keep, like, introducing these new characters, and, like, it's all serious and tense. Um, but I, don't, I didn't really get what was happening. And he watched for a little bit, and he was like, well— you get that they're clones, right? And I was like, yeah, no, I know they're all supposed to be the same person. And he was like, right, but but you get that it's one actress playing all the all of the different characters. Right, like they're identical. Right. And I was like, I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, that's that's just one actress and she's playing all of the different roles. And I was like, surely not. That one has glasses and that one has bangs. <laughs> they couldn't possibly be the same actress. Right. Um and, like, now I logically understand that they are the same actress, but I honestly, like, I cannot see it. Like, I look at these pictures of the two different, you know, clones, one of whom has dreadlocks and one of whom has bangs. Mm-hmm. And, like, I, I cannot make myself believe that they're the same person until I, like, you know, if I, like, cover up the bangs and hide everything except, you know, I can say, oh, yeah, I guess those I guess those are the same. But it's it's, like, I can't make myself see it despite logically knowing it. Mm-hmm. 
And so then, you know, realizing this made all kinds of other things start to make sense. Back back when I was bartending in my Durndal, uh, I was terrible at, like, IDing people, right? Like, you card people to see if they're 21. Right. And someone would, like, hand me an ID, and I would look at the ID, and I'd look at their face, and I'd be like, what am I supposed to be doing here? <laughs> like, I see that. Did you, did, did you fake it? You're like, yeah, it looks I, kind of like you, know, you. I was like, yeah, human face, check, two eyes, right, you know, the same basic age, okay. Um but yeah, that was that was really a struggle too. Mm-hmm. Orphan Black is pretty recent, so like, is this kind of a recent revelation for you? Then that it's kind of dawned on you in the last few years that this is a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think also like thinking about and studying perception, you know, and, and and realizing the huge range of individual variability that that there is in in so many different perceptual processes. Um, you know, just kind of made me, I guess, more attuned to the idea that there there might be individual differences uh, uh, in in face recognition. Yeah, yeah. And it's and I, I'm I'm a very social, super extroverted person, uh, and so this kind of um, this like feel you know kind of hamstrings me in some ways. Like I feel like I am more. Uh, I don't like it. It puts some some challenges um, on social interactions, right? I, I have more often than I would like situations where I fail to recognize someone that I think most people would recognize. You know, like somebody mm-hmm. that I know well enough that I should be recognizing them. But you weren't aware of this, right? Like for years, you, know, you probably thought, weren't, and you just right. didn't even register that this is an issue, right? Yeah, and I and I, I I think I thought that I had a bad memory just generally. Be like, oh, I guess I just forgot them, um, but but I don't, but I forget very selectively. In that, I'm more likely to, air quotes, forget if someone has changed their hairdo, or you know, I'm seeing them in like I usually see them at the gym with their hair pulled back, and now I see them out with their hair down or something like. It is much harder for me to recognize people when they don't have those like external cues mm-hmm. that I have become accustomed to using. Yeah, um, and so I don't think it's about memory generally i think it's about bad face recognition and then trying to overcome it by using you know facial hair and clothing and those kinds of things right have you been um yeah so like how intentionally have you been practicing that that strategy yeah so i i think about it pretty regularly um particularly if i'm like going to a conference where i'm going to see people that i haven't seen in a while or or, you know, right now at back-to-school time where I'm going to see a bunch of students who have dyed their hair and gotten new piercings over the summer, and mm-hmm. that's going to make me struggle. And and one place that I really notice it is when I'm in front of a class of new students, and I've got, you know, like 30 brand-new faces in front of me. Um, and, and typically what I do is, like, I I print off, you know, their, their pictures, like their headshots from the campus directory, and I make flashcards before the start of term. And I can pretty quickly, like, learn to associate the picture with the person's name. But then the hard thing for me is learning the association between the picture and like their face in real life. Uh-huh. Right. Um yep. and and so that's that's the really challenging part. And that I'm like, I have my flashcards out in class and I'm like, is that one? I think is that one? You know, I'm back to like trying to ID people, right? Um uh and so it's 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 tricky, but but then like with enough work and enough exposure, I'm able to overcome it until they you know, get a dramatic haircut. <laughs> it is hard in situations where you feel like you should know someone though, right? Mm. Like I don't 
um, I may not be as far in the continuum as you, but I, I certainly don't feel like I have like expert face perception or memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially, you know, you're walking down the hall and um, see someone who looks like they could well be a, a student in my class of 160. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I really want to be to acknowledge them for having been in my class all semester, but also I'm really not sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. And there's that, that lack of, of certainty. Mm-hmm. I remember as a student walking down the hall and having professors not say hi to me or not know my name and being really, you know, kind of put off by that. Um, yeah. And now, you know, now the shoe's on the other foot and I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe they were thinking about something else. Maybe they just have kind of not amazing face perception. And and I, and I feel worse about it as I get like farther along in my career and I'm more likely to be in a position of power. Right. Because it feels like kind of a jerk move to not be appropriately acknowledging people that you have had um, interactions with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so so one way of dealing with that is kind of like erring on the side of smiling and saying an animated hello to, right, to everyone. everyone, you know, right. like kind of lowering my threshold for who gets a cheerful greeting. And I think I do also like tend to err on the side of saying nice to see you rather than nice to meet you or, yeah. or yeah, yeah. things like that, you know, but at some point you're just... <laughs> Being incredibly friendly to strangers. Right. Well, it's a good way to meet people too, so right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it is, uh, you know, an interesting example of this thing about perception, which is you never get to try on somebody else's. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you said you had two things. What's your other one? Okay. The, uh, so the other one, it's funny, both of, both of the things that I thought of that I wanted to talk about are like related to cognition, which is like the field that I'm Shocking, interested in. right. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> So the other one is um, I'm really bad at mental math. If I'm in a situation, this just happened yesterday. I was working with a student. And we were saying, okay, we're like looking at this audio file and we're like, all right, the sample rate is uh, is 16,000 hertz and we're refreshing, you know, every 50 samples. And so in that case, how many, you know, we're like doing like pretty basic mental math, right? Um, when that happens, I just totally freeze up and like go into panic mode. So maybe it's not that I'm like actually that bad at it, but I just am really worried that I'm going to be bad at it. Mm-hmm. And I think some of that is, you know, I'm a woman in science and I don't want to like live up or like live down to stereotypes, right? About mm-hmm. women being bad at math. And so when I'm in this situation, I just want to be able to be like, I can do this. I know the answers. And and, and like, and I'm, I'm not bad at math, right? I do like you know, computational mathematical kind right. of modeling work right. and like, you know, yep. like I'm, I can do math. But when I'm in these like time sensitive situations in front of other people, I get so nervous that it really interrupts my ability to like actually do it properly. Is that something you've been thinking about for a long time or is that another thing that's been more recent? No, I've always been super bad at it. Okay. And aware of that, right? And aware I of guess, it. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and, and before, like when I was younger... I would think, oh, I can't do this, and maybe it's because I'm not good at math or I'm not smart enough or something, and now I have more confidence in my intellect and my ability, and you'd be like, no, I totally can do this. What's happening is that I'm just panicking when given the opportunity to do it, Mm -hmm. and I don't entirely know. I don't really have a good answer for how I deal with it. Um, if, If I'm with people that I'm super comfortable with and, like, know my deal about mental math, I will I will regularly be like, okay, hang on. I'm going to do this myself. And then I'll be like, okay, 50, carry the seven right. or a hundred. <laughs> right. uh-huh. You know, and like, and, and, and do that to try to like build up my confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I'm in a situation where I have to do something like this and I'm by myself, I will like deliberately not 
use a calculator and I'll be like, nope, strand, you can do this, figure it out, you know, and like take the time to try to like build up my confidence about it. But I, if that is what I struggle with. Yeah. I mean, something that kind of struck me um, as you were telling these stories and, you know, for, for me too, is I mean, there's sort of like the intellectual awareness that maybe something, you know, you're not great at something, one isn't mm-hmm. great at something. Mm-hmm. And then there's sort of like the emotional impact of that. And I, mm-hmm. and those two are kind of separable. So like the apprehension that you feel about not being great at face recognition, for example, is like mm-hmm. a whole other layer on top of the fact that you're not actually good. Mm-hmm. And someone else mm-hmm. might be equally as good or not good as you are and just not care. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. And so there's like the ability and then there's sort of like, how does, how does that affect you? Mm-hmm. And in your case, it seems like, you know, for the face recognition, you sort of you were intentional about like other strategies you could use, which probably has been helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, we all have things that we're bad at. Uh, and, and one of the things that I have kind of tried to, to cultivate is doing like exactly that separation being like, this is the thing about me that, you know, I struggle in this particular situation. Um, but but then also realizing that, like, there is a distinction between how I, I don't know, innately or inherently am at something um, and how I feel about it, how I deal with it, how I choose to respond to it. Um, and that's, that's, I think, a, a distinction um, worthy of, of, you know, of mentioning that, like, that, that people have some kind of choice or have some kind of ability to to decide how they're going to deal with with the shortcomings that we have. Right. Like you might not be able to, you may or may not be able to control that thing, but you mm-hmm. potentially can control how you frame it or how you react to it or what you're yep. going to do yep. about it. Yep. Okay, actually there's one other thing that I'm really bad at. This this segues really nicely into this. Um I also have a, a pretty bad um prospective memory, like memory to do things in the future, like, oh, I have to remember that I've got to stop on the way home and buy milk or it's so-and-so's birthday. I have to remember to call them this afternoon or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, I, I'm i also really bad at that. Um, and the way that I deal with it is just to, like, acknowledge that I'm terrible at it, kind of give up on being good at it, and just rely super heavily on digital aids. Mm-hmm. So I just re- have a million reminders on my phone and alerts and alarms and to-do lists. And, you know, so this is an example of something where I'm not trying to improve my prospective memory. I'm just finding crutches that that uh, keep that that um, that thing that I'm bad at from messing up my life too much. Mm-hmm. I had tr- I trained myself a few years ago. Um, well, I should say back long ago when I was an undergraduate, I was pretty good at remembering stuff. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I kind of kept a little calendar, but I didn't need it. And I remembered classes and appointments and, you know, it was all, it was all up in the, the head somewhere. And at some point that, you know, it gradually eroded. And then like at some point, mostly after starting a lab and, and also having a child, it just like completely evaporated. <laughs> And so for, it completely, thing is just really, yeah, uh-huh. completely. And so for years, I, I've been using various like, you know, to do apps or organizing apps or project, you know, project apps. And um, so OmniFocus is the one that I settled on. I've been using that for a long time. It's Mac only, but phone and desktop. And, um, and, and what I train myself to do pretty successfully is every time I tell someone, oh, remind me to do that, I stop. And just type it in. Mm-hmm. So every time, so I do still offload that and ask other people to remind me. 
but I also just accept that I'm not going to remember it. Uh, Or if I say to myself, I need to remember to X, I just like, you know, laugh at myself and pull it out and write it down. So I cultivating that habit has been really useful for me too. Mm -hmm. There's another part of that, which is then you have to like figure out a way to do all that stuff. And we can do that another time. But I was going to um, say, I think that might yeah, be a whole yeah, other episode. That could be a couple of years of, of uh, <laughs> episodes. But uh, but yeah, certainly being able, just acknowledging that challenge and then dealing with it is, has mm-hmm. been useful. Mm-hmm. And and not being too embarrassed of it. I The first time I would like in class or in a lab meeting or in front of other people, you know, be having a conversation and just pull out my phone and be like, hey, Siri, remind me that I need to send that paper to, you know. Um, uh, oh, Siri turned on. Sorry, nothing. Siri, go back to sleep. Um, the first few times I did that, and people kind of like giggled at me. I was like, "Ooh, is this a is this a nerdy, absent-minded professor thing to do?" But I just, I just don't care. Like, who if they cares? Laugh right. now. It's just yep. what I have to do. Yep. One thing um, that I thought of while you were you're sharing your stories is that pretty much I think in your cases, those were mostly things that you figured out about yourself. Like you had Mm -hmm. some, you know, introspection and and realization about these characteristics about your own behavior, your own strengths and weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, so it got me thinking about times where we rely on other people to tell us, because that's, Mm. that can be a different kind of challenge. When I was a child, like five or six, I played what I remember to be quite a lot of chess with my dad. And and he, he was a grown up, of course, and I wasn't. And I remember winning like pretty often. Uh, and so as a six year old, I'm like, I am pretty good at chess. Uh, and I, I didn't really get into it. And I kind of didn't play for a long time. And it was not until many years later, by which I mean, not that many years ago, mm-hmm. where it dawned on me that maybe he was letting me win. And I was, I was actually, I, you know, I was, I was able to get over it uh, with maturity, but like for, for half a second, I was crushed because I had had this impression of being good at chess. And that was, you know, as a six year old, that was like part of my identity. And I was like mildly offended, although I totally understood um, that I had been lied to about my ability, you know, for good reason, probably. Well, uh, this is, in fact, a, a, a testable hypothesis. Maybe you are great at chess, and if you haven't played much, you don't know. That's true. That's true. Well, yes, I, I'll i check it out, but I suspect I'm not, I'm not a genius uh, yeah, yeah. at chess. Yeah. <laughs> and so in that case, and that, you know, this is kind of a funny story, but I, it was like the, it was the wrong feedback if I wanted to be a great chess player. I mean, mm-hmm. it was good for – it was good at the time to encourage me, but um, I didn't actually learn about my own – Potential, so that that makes me think about about mentoring too, and sort of the kinds of things that we see in the people that we were working with uh, mm-hmm. or mentoring that could maybe use improvement. And so, you know, how much do we step in about that, and what kinds of things are the most common? Um, so, one thing that came to mind for me was well, two things came to mind. Uh, one was writing, uh, as in like writing a paper or a you know, a paper, manuscript kind of writing. Um, and I've always enjoyed writing. So that has actually come fairly easily for me. But I, I also practiced a whole lot. And I definitely feel, uh, I mean, compared to the first manuscript I ever wrote to the most recent one, is gotten an order of magnitude or more easier mm-hmm. to organize and to think about and just to sort of, you know, frame things in different ways. So I've noticed getting better at that, although I, it wasn't it wasn't a huge challenge. That sounds so 
like such a humble brag or something. I don't mean it to be, <laughs> but just like it, you know, it, it never, it, it never intimidated me. Yeah. However, something that really did was grant writing. And so I'm sharing that not everyone has to write grants, but people have their own version of that. And for me, I really, I spent a lot of time thinking about it and feeling like I didn't know what I was doing because I didn't and trying to read other people's grants and get feedback and advice on and on and on. And it turned out at the end, I mean, the most helpful thing was just jumping in and doing it. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I did a great job my first few times doing it, but I, but I got better. And so that was, you know, really encouraging actually to see that, um, you know, with some practice and being kind of thoughtful about what wasn't going well, I was able to pretty quickly get over that. And it really reduced the anxiety and uh, apprehension I had about the whole process, right? Mm -hmm. Like the first time I just kept putting off submitting that grant because I knew I didn't know what I was doing and I wanted to, I don't like doing things if I don't feel like I'm going to succeed at it. And so it was, it was not paralyzing because I kind of, I moved, but I moved very slowly. Mm -hmm. um, and then even just having a little bit of experience and a little bit of knowledge, you know, just helped so much. And do you think that um, having gone through the experience of feeling bad at something and then working on it until you feel better at it uh, makes you feel empowered or more confident about trying things, trying to do things that you think that you're bad at now? Yeah, probably. Although I do think um, there are certain domains where I've done that more often, mm -hmm. right? Like uh, learning how to program in a different language, like, like scripting or something. And so, mm -hmm. um, which is another good example. So I, I started off, I know it's not really programming, but the first um, type of thing I did was HTML. So back mm -hmm. in the 90s, we would edit our HTML by hand and notepad. Um, and I had a summer job doing the uh, working on the website of the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra. And I did a whole lot of tables of like upcoming performances um, all by hand. And so, you know, it was, it was fine. It was fun enough, but that kind of got me um, thinking about that sort of thing. And then that was sort of like the gateway drug to JavaScript because you use that in web pages. And then um, in graduate school, I started using MATLAB for a class and I thought I should really analyze my data using MATLAB. Uh, and then, you know, every couple of years, there's a reason to do it. So the first couple of times, the whole point of, of that like digression is the first couple of times I'd never done it before. And I just thought, well, I don't know if I can do it. Having now gone through like five or six different languages of one sort or another, and not that I'm amazing at any of them, but like I, I've understood that if with, with X amount of practice and some time, I can probably, you know, do some basic things and it doesn't stress me out. So mm -hmm. it's like, I don't have the time to do it, but it doesn't, as a category, it, it doesn't, uh, intimidate me the way that it used to. And I think that's a big one for me. Um, you know, the idea of kind of programming, because I think a lot of people who haven't done it are intimidated because they haven't done it. And so I'm really, um, I think it's just, I really encourage people to sort of get started, even if it's small and even if it's difficult, and even if it doesn't feel like you're making a lot of progress, because most people um, with a little bit of time and attention get quite a bit better um, mm -hmm. At least to the point of feeling like they know, they kind of have a general sense of what's going on. Right. The hardest part is understanding that you are, in fact, capable of doing it. And then once you've committed to that, then the actual then the actual doing it is just, you know, time and work, but right. but can be done. Yep. But that kind of contrasts a little bit with with some of the, your examples where like there are there might be things that you're just not going to get better at. Right. Like there's mm -hmm. categories of things you're bad at 
or there's things you're bad at and you don't know it. And there's things you're bad at and you know, and you could get better. Mm-hmm. There's things you're bad at and you won't get better, but you can like compensate. Mm-hmm. And then there are probably things that, that we're just bad at and that's just how it is. And there's nothing to do, but sort of learn to accept it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or like, uh, yeah, learn to accept it, have a good attitude about it. Right. But, th- but yeah, but then one of the challenges is like figuring out what category something goes in. Like, obviously, if I'm not aware of being bad at it, I can't think about it. But if right. I think that some people are good at math and some aren't, then I'm just bad at math mm-hmm. um, for whatever reason, you know, um, mm-hmm. then I might be less likely to to work on it. Whereas if it's like, oh, you know what? Not every, you know, this this might be a changeable skill or there might be strategies around it. Maybe I'll try to find some of them. Mm-hmm. You know, I my I am really inclined to believe that within the bounds of people of, you know, kind of typical cognitive ability, uh, that there are very few things that with practice you can't get better at. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe, you know, if there are, um, you know, people who have prosopagnosia can't train themselves over time to be able to see faces. But I'm sure that if I really sat down and worked on mental math and worked on my own, like, nerves about it that I could get better. And I probably have, you know, I Mm -hmm. probably have in the last several years. I just don't have, didn't collect baseline data to, to compare to. But yeah, I think, I think your insight about figuring out which of the categories, the things that you're bad at fall into is a really nice insight. Um, uh, You know, kind of making that decision of like, is this something that I'm bad at that I I'm capable of getting better at that I want to devote time to. You, you might almost ask, is the juice worth the squeeze <laughs> in terms of? <laughs> I see what you did there. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, in terms of, you know, de- devoting time and energy to, or is this one that I just take a deep breath and accept that I'm not going to be that great at? Given that, you know, we can't we can't all be great at any everything. Yeah. Well, so that's perfect segue to one of my other questions, which is, how do you decide what to what to get better at, if anything. Speaking for myself, there are many things I'm bad at, and I probably only have time to work on zero or one of those things. And so how do I decide which is the thing I should focus on? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. <laughs> it could be a rhetorical question, and we're done. <laughs> <laughs> how do we decide? When I think about the things that I want to get better at professionally, that I feel like I'm not good at professionally, um, the things that kind of rise to the top of the pile tend to be things that are, like, haunting me recurrently. So a couple of years ago, I made the change from using SPSS for data analysis to using R. And and that was because, like, every time I sat down to analyze my data, every time I looked at a paper, I would think to myself, I really need to do this. I really need to do this. Mm-hmm. And so that was one where I just... I felt compelled more strongly than I do did for I really need to learn more about Bayesian statistics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so one of the things that, you know, makes that decision is just how powerfully I'm feeling it. Well, and that's all. But that, that is, I mean, um, not to speak for you, but like statistical analysis and plotting is like a, also a big part of what you do. Yeah. And it's right. really critical to your success in your career and probably your enjoyment of that. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, so one is, you know, kind of like the, the things that haunt me. Um, the other is, you know, making some kind of determinations about like how low the fruit are hanging, mm-hmm. right? Like the things that we're the worst at are probably the easiest for us to make gains in. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so, you know, if you can see something, be like, boy, I'm bad at that. And I bet if I just spent a couple days really trying to understand it, then I would. And then every time I'm presented with it, I wouldn't have to, you know, feel bad about being bad at it. Um, that that definitely, like, plays into it for me, too. I've had that about um, papers uh, in the literature that get cited regularly or people bring up regularly where I've thought, oh, yeah, I've I have some vague understanding of that, but it's just it's a really long paper and I've never taken the time. Um, and those, it's like, you know, you just take like four hours and sit down and really get your head into that. Mm-hmm. And then every time somebody mentions it, you you're going to think, oh, I know this. I, I, I can contribute meaningfully to this conversation. And so that's one where it's like, if the fruit are hanging very low, just go get them. Right. I have the perception, which may or may not be true, and, and, and apologies to all the postdocs and graduate students who don't feel this way, but I felt like I had a little more freedom to do that as a postdoc and graduate student. Just, you know, like, oh, there's a new paper out on this thing that I, I feel like I should read, but it's complicated. I'm going to, you know, like you said, take four hours, take six hours to like dig into it. And it's going to reference a couple other papers and I look up those. And then by the end of that, that time, I would feel like I understood the thing. Um, and I felt like, yeah, I could kind of put together a few of those or, or, you know, a little programming project. Oh, I should really do this thing. It, it's been really annoying me. I would take, cut out a hunk of time and do it. Um, and I guess, was it worth it or not? I don't know, but I kind of did feel like I had more six hour chunks to like knock a few fruit off the tree. Mm-hmm. Um, Ju- as, juicy, juicy fruit, juicy fruit, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, whereas now it feels it, it feels harder. So that you know, I guess the the things I'm bad at haven't changed. Maybe there are a few more, but then mm-hmm. it, it's like a little bit less. Um, feels like I have less freedom to to address them, and that's probably not true. It's, I mean, we ha- we all have the same number of hours in the day, so I'm just not prioritizing that. So I guess maybe another way to put that is implicitly I've sort of deprioritized trying to get better at some of those things because mm-hmm. they don't seem as pressing in the moment for whatever reason. Sure. And and I feel like uh, I um, I agree about the number of free six-hour chunks of time that <laughs> uh-huh. I have compared to when I was a grad student or a postdoc. Um, but I am so much faster and more efficient at doing work now than I used to be that, that I actually feel like I have more opportunity or more like ability to do that now mm-hmm. than I did, you know, earlier in my training. Um, because not because I have more time, but because I am more efficient at using it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, the, I, I paused there. I'm not sure if I feel more efficient, but I, mm-hmm. lots of people say that, and it probably is true. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just doesn't. It doesn't always feel that way. So, what do you? Um, not to make this too like a- academicish, academical. Is that a I word? I believe it's academicious. Is how it's I, oh, is that, is that how it's pronounced? Okay, great. But what? So, what do you think are the like? What areas you know should we be focusing on, or should we be encouraging you know our colleagues and trainees to focus on? I mean, if you if you're just starting, if it's your first week in graduate school, and you let's just say you feel like you're bad at everything because this is all brand new, like what's the? How do you think about proceeding then? You know, for the next couple of years. I think probably the most powerful thing you can work on improving is developing a sense of inner peace about being bad at things. And I don't mean this as a way of like that you shouldn't be motivated to work on things, but that that if we had any possible guest on this show, 
you know, name the most prestigious Nobel Prize winning anything, they could probably fill 40 minutes with what they're bad at, too. Mm -hmm. um, so there are always going to be things that each of us is bad at. And and I think the challenge is, you know, uh, uh, coming to terms with that um, and then figuring out how to be selective about what you want to get better at. And, and I think, you know, like first week of grad school or, you know, first week in a new position, any kind of position, um, what I remember was just being overwhelmed at the number of things that I was bad at and, and that it is, I think, really hard to be selective at that point because you don't know which of the things are going to be the most important. Right. Right? right. Do I sink a lot of time in this and maybe it ends up in two years I'm not working on that anymore? Um, and so I think the the advice the advice that I would give is like, you know, work hard on the things that are in front of you that seem important now and be willing to avoid sunk cost fallacies and let those things go and work hard on other things if the circumstances change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that a lot. And I, I think also something that is useful is sort of like the skill of of introspection or like of the skill of evaluating oneself a little bit, and not in a judgy way, but just more of like in a personal development plan way. And I've, I've had to fill out a lot of personal development plans over the years. And I've <laughs> rolled my eyes almost every time, um, or individual development plan, whatever, whatever acronym you want to use. Um, however, I actually think it is, it, it can be a useful tool, or that kind of thinking can be a useful tool about just brainstorming a little bit, like here, here's where I'm at. Here's where I'd like to be in a year or two years or five years. And what does it seem like are the, you know, most helpful things for me to get there? Mm -hmm. You have a list of 20 things. You're not going to do them all in the next year, but maybe there are a couple of things. Maybe it's reading papers more efficiently or getting better at writing R code or, you know, improving organization within a manuscript or something that's kind of tractable. Mm -hmm. Um and that'll come easier for some people than others. But yeah, I think having some sense of a couple of specifics rather than just this overwhelming sense of I can't do all this stuff yet mm -hmm. uh, is, is probably useful because no one can no one can do everything and, and no one is going to learn everything at the same rate. And so I think, yeah, you have to be cut yourself some slack and have some grace uh, and then also be a little bit strategic about, you know, what are the things that actually might give you the most return on your investment of time? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so um, a while back, uh, Nate Cornell, um, uh, who's a, a, also a cognitive psychologist, um, wrote a blog post. Uh, the, the The gist of which um, was the advice was kind of pursue things that you already have some inclination to be good at. Right, that it's the easiest for you to get good at things that you are already suited for, based on you know your abilities or prior experience or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so, what do you think about this idea of like hone what you're already good at? You know, be be the expert in the things that you are already well set up to do well, versus struggling through things that you're not well suited for, or not as well prepared for, or are harder for you for some reason. I think it's a really it's a really good perspective that like everything is not always true. So I think in a lot of situations it's good, to, you know, play to your strengths and um not try to do something you can't do. Mm -hmm. My PhD advisor, uh, Art Wingfield, is not a tall person and he would um frequently share when when this kind of thing came up, 
um, that, you know, he always wanted to play center for the Boston Celtics, but, you know, it wasn't in the cards for him. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, that was his way of sort of saying we all have different strengths and abilities and just wanting to do something is frequently not enough as much as we would like it to be. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I think that sometimes there are opportunities, you know, in life and in this career for adding a new technique or sort of going outside our comfort zone. And, you know, there are seasons for that and um, where it works better than others. But uh, I think if we're aware of the opportunity to do that, sometimes um, it can actually be really useful to do that. Mm-hmm. Even, even, even if it's something like I'm used to programming in this language, I'm really comfortable and pretty good at it, but do I really want to change to this other language? I mean, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but, you know, it's not, I wouldn't rule it out immediately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like I like the I like the Wingfield story. Um, and and you know when I have this conversation with with students, for instance, who are like, oh, I'm kind of interested in you know learning more about statistics, but I'm just bad at math or bad at stats, and so I don't want to do that. Um, you know, it always kind of like breaks my heart a little bit because I want to say, well, like, you don't know what you're good at until you put some time in to to see if you can can be good at those things. Right. Of course, with the understanding that. If you have more experience or have some background with it, that's going to make it easier for you to do than than it otherwise would be. Right. Well, I think also it kind of gets back to the idea of our own internal biases and potential reacting to stereotypes that we, you know, I'd be hesitant to encourage someone to really to think about what they're good at and not because they might rule themselves out of some opportunities because mm-hmm. of their their view of their ability as opposed to their actual ability. So that's right. where getting some external input, uh, you know, from mentors or someone, someone that we trust is really useful because those people can tell us, hopefully kindly, you know, that maybe this isn't a, a, the most productive direction, or maybe they'll say, you know what, you can do it. And, and that's what we need to hear. Yeah. You know, and when, and when I hear students say something like, I'm not good at math, what one of the answers that I sometimes give is, maybe you're not good at it yet. Mm-hmm. And so the choice is, is that something you want to put the time in to to get good at. Right. Yeah, exactly. And and I think that um, you said this before, but that's where it is very individual as to whether it's worth it. Yep. Like maybe I could, um, I could probably be a much better chess player than I am now if I really put hours and hours into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can tell you right now, that's not worth it to me. And f- yep. obviously for some people it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not about, not always about, can you do it? It's about, you know, what are your long-term goals and is this going to help you get there? Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that we should talk about on this topic, Julia? <laughs> Do you have any other notes? I, I don't. I think I think that wraps it up. Well, before we uh, say goodbye, I also just want to remind everyone that we are available on iTunes in the podcast section. If you search for The Juice and the Squeeze, you can find us. And if you like the show, be so kind as to leave us a good review there. That will help new people discover the show. You are lucky enough to have found it already, but not everyone has. And uh, so a a little review on iTunes is going to help everyone else find it, too. Also, feel free to contact us. We'd love to know what you think and what you'd like to hear more about. And how can people contact us, Julia? They can go to our website, which is juiceandsqueeze.net. And there's a contact form. That's right. It's really easy. It says contact right on there. It's labeled. You can also talk to us on Twitter at uh, at Juice Squeeze Pod. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll talk to you next time. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. Hey, you're still here. That's great. If you liked our episode, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It's super encouraging, and you also get bonus content. 
Every single supporter will have access to our exclusive Slack workspace, where we'll have Ask Us Anything chat sessions, and we're also working on bonus episodes that will only be available on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash juice and squeeze, or you can find a link in the show notes. Show notes for this episode are at juiceandsqueeze.net slash two. Thanks for listening. Can